and we'll make sure we're finishing up by 11, all right? So keep, keep me accountable here, all right? I don't like going beyond the time. I do have some, yes. Well, friends, this is um, worth exploring more, this relationship, the dynamic of it, being detailed about it. People often ask, you know, how do you have a deep relationship? I invite you to consider how things make deep impressions. Some of you, maybe not. Do you remember where you were when JFK was shot? Some of you might be able to say, all right. I can't ask that question in the seminary, yeah? Uh, some of you, do you remember where you were when 9-11 happened? Okay. Can you tell me, you can probably tell me uh, what you were doing. You can probably tell me where you were standing. You can probably tell me uh, maybe even what you were wearing that day. That might be tough. No. But you remember details. You remember details. So when something impacts us deeply, we remember the details. So if I want to have a deep relationship, depth is about detail. Depth is about detail. This was expressed uh, very clearly by a woman recently widowed her husband of 35 years, passed away from cancer. And it was three weeks into her new life, if you will, after her husband. And she, that morning, just kind of broke down crying because she realized after three weeks just how bad the coffee was. Her husband made the coffee. And he made really good coffee. And he knew just how to make it, just the way she liked it. This many scoops, this long of a grind, this blend, this amount of water. It's all about the grind, the beans, and the water. If that's mixed up, or if that's not quite right, the coffee's not quite right. It's too concentrated, too weak. You, you know. And she said, I didn't realize how into my life he was into my life he was. Why? Because he paid attention to the details. And the details of their life together constituted this intimacy. So if I am wanting a deep relationship with God, how detailed am I with my thoughts and my feelings and my desires? How detailed am I in relating those to God? in bringing them entirely to God. We talk about surrender, 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 surrender that. Let God be God. Let go. Well, the surrendering is meant to be detailed as well. God is never abstract. God is always concrete with us, which is why saints can be immensely annoying because they're so concrete. They're so detailed. They're so honest. They're so honest. 
Now, this thoughts, feelings, desires, uh, I always have to prove myself to seminarians because I work with IPF, and IPF is like, oh, it's kind of a weird thing in Omaha you guys do. So there's always a little apologetic, like, well, thoughts, feelings, and desires isn't a, a made-up thing. You can go straight into the catechism, and the catechism is clear about the life of prayer. The life of prayer is about engaging thought, imagination, and emotion, and desire. Huh, there's the catechism. Thoughts, feelings, desires. This is paragraph 2733. 2733. Is that right? No, 2723, excuse me. And the reason for having thoughts, feelings, desires be brought, this quest of prayer, its goal is to make our own in faith the subject considered by confronting it with the reality of our own life. So that's abstract language for bringing everything to Jesus. Bringing everything to God. And so when I read the Gospel, when I pray with the Gospel, which we're going to do in a few moments, I can launch in one of two ways. I can launch through my reason. And my reason with the Gospel will tell me, well, that's interesting. That's something I want to think about. That's something I want to come back to. Or I can launch through my imagination. What's Jesus saying? How does He say it? Where am I standing? What does it smell like in the room? Am I eating? Am I close to Him? Am I close to Mary? Where am I? So the imagination draws us in. Either one is a launch into this prayerful quest. Meditation or contemplation. Imagination launches us into contemplation. Seeing with and hearing with our own selves what's happening in the Scripture, what's happening in the, in the Gospel. And then bringing to bear in that Gospel all my thoughts, feelings, desires that are coming up. When I see Jesus do this, how does that make me feel? When I hear Jesus say that, how does that make me feel? What do I think about? What do I desire in the face of that? So our thoughts, feelings, desires engage the subject either through meditation or contemplation. The imagination is key for contemplation. It's important to pay attention to everything because everything can lead to God. And my favorite image for this is the Mississippi River System, which you would be very uh, attentive to. And let's just say this image came from a guy who was from Homa Thibodeau. Anybody know where Homa is? Or Thibodeau? It's a diocese, Homa Thibodeau, Louisiana, which is way down here. Uh, oops, that didn't work. Is there a... Oh, there's the laser. Way down here. Homa Thibodeau's way down in southern Louisiana. So his, this is his image because he says, God is like the ocean. God's like the ocean. So I live really close to God is what he would say. All, right? all you folks up here in like Omaha, you're a long ways from God. All right? But here's the good news. God's reaching into all of our stuff. 
All right? Reaching into all of our lives. We have this landscape of our heart. Our landscape of our heart is like America. All right? It's meant to be the land of the free. And there's lots of interesting little cricks and tributaries and rivers and they lead to God if we pay attention. They lead to who God is for us. So I might have lots of passing thoughts, feelings, desires that happen on Monday and Tuesday. Monday, maybe depressive thoughts. Friday, I have lots of passing thoughts, feelings, desires that happen on Friday. But if I'm paying attention, some of those thoughts, feelings, desires hook me right into who God is for me. And so, for example, I'm I'm driving down the street and I notice that I'm a little bit uh, upset with the driver in front of me. I'm impatient. Well, that's a psychological situation. I'm just kind of dwelling up there in Montana with my impatience. All right? And then, if I pray later in the day, I notice that was a pretty profound impatience. That driver made me more upset than was really necessary. It was disproportionate. My response was disproportionate to just that slow driver. There was something else going on. What was my impatience all about? I start to pray with that. I tell Jesus about my impatience. I got really impatient with this driver right in front of me. What was that about? Well, I was felt like I was running late. I'm coming down the river, coming down out of Montana through the Dakotas, and I was feeling like I was late. And then I start to notice, well, what was that feeling of being late and thinking I'm being late and desiring to be on time? What was that all about? Well, I want to do things well. I want to do them right. Now I'm getting to St. Louis there. I want to do them right all the time. I want to be perfectly doing them because our Heavenly Father is perfect. And right now I feel like I'm failing God. Oh. A thought, feeling, desire that alienates me from God. And I just had to follow the tributaries. And you can see how that just getting cut off in traffic said something about my spiritual state. Says something about how I stand before God, and it's not true. I'm not failing God. But that's my thought, feeling, desire in that particular encounter, in that particular moment. Just follow the river. Follow the thoughts, feelings, and desires. You can see some of them will affect directly my relationship with God, who is the ocean of mercy. And I want to stay flowing into and receptive to this ocean of mercy. All this training and relationship and identity and mission is meant for us to experience a freedom that Jesus always wants for us. Wherever there's the Holy Spirit, there's freedom. And it looks a little like this. It looks something like this. Right. You've probably seen those memes where it's like, uh, here's what it looks like to mom and the child is 45 feet in the air. And here's what it looks like to dad and the child's two feet in the air. Contrast. This is an actual child being thrown actually in the air on a beach. So how's that child doing there? Is that child in relationship? You bet. Is that child receiving love from the Father? You bet. How many of us live here? Day by day. We did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We received a spirit of adoption in which we cry out, Abba, Father. That's Jesus' own spirit. The Father has us. Into your hands I commend my spirit. It is finished. 
So we're meant to live in this relationship. Over and over again. Just keep living there. Day by day. So I showed this image to a group of priests in Belleville. I gave a priest retreat in Belleville. That's the place across the river. They kind of feel like the, the stepchild over there. They're just they're Belleville. They're good. All right. And uh, they shared graces at the end of the retreat. And one of the priests, an 85-year-old uh, priest, really uh, astonishing man. He, he had served as a missionary and just I was just throughout the week just noticing his manner and his attentiveness. And I thought he might be missing some things, but he shared this grace. He said, uh, friends, I know I'm dying and I will be dying soon. So I've been preparing for my death. And in my preparation for my dying, I've been praying with, to the one much has been given, much will be expected. And as I've prayed with that, it's been difficult to prepare for dying. Because so much is expected and so much has been given in my priesthood. But when I saw this image of the father throwing the child into the air, I think I need to have a new scripture passage for my preparation for dying. Because I don't think I trust enough. And I want to trust more. And the father isn't just expecting things of me. He's wanting to catch me. 85-year-old priest. The Father wants to catch me. Do I believe that in my daily life? The Father wants to catch me. Nothing is outside of His care. If I live there, it will change everything. Friends, as a a formator, people sometimes think... um, I'm there to be the, the heavy, you know, the guy does something wrong, he gets tossed out, you know. And that's not my job. The job I do at the seminary is to say this to the men. I'm not interested in you becoming a priest. I am not interested at all. Whether you become a priest or not, not interested. Not invested in that. What I am interested in every day, are you listening to God I am fascinated with that. Are you listening to God? That's what fascinates me. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. Is this man listening to God? And so I'm never asking this question. Does this man have too much that might get in the way of him being a priest? Does this man have too much stuff that might get in the way of him being an effective minister? That's a terrible question because then the guy's set up antagonistically. I better not tell Father about this because then he'll think I have too much stuff. Which probably gives you a hint. I'm at the epicenter of the controversy. Pray for me and pray for our team at the seminary because everything you're seeing in the media is about this project of nurturing a transparency animated by a trust that says we need to know who you are if we're going to be engaged to you as priest. We need to know what you're about if we're going to be engaged to you as priest. 
So I tell the men, you can have a private life, but you can't have a secret life. So the work of the seminary is to create the circumstances that will allow a man to reveal who he is. That's their number one job at the seminary. And I'm sharing this with you by way of, this is what we do at Kenrick Glennon every day. Create the environment that allows a man to tell us who he is. His job isn't to get good grades. His job isn't to get an A in spirituality. I had 42 classmates at North American College. Seven of them are no longer priests. They were the brightest seven in my class. Harvard, Georgetown, Diplomatic Corps, lawyer, pharmacist. They were the brightest guys. They left not because they got bad grades. They aced academics. They left because something human and spiritual was missing. Something human and spiritual wasn't paid attention to. Something human and spiritual wasn't addressed. Something human and spiritual was not brought out into the open. So what keeps me up at night? Am I asking these men the right questions? Am I listening attentively to what God desires? And am I helping this man to listen to what God desires? To pay attention to God more than me? That's what keeps me up at night. That's the work we're doing. So the question I'm asking the men to, to realize is, I'm really looking at, is this man letting God into his stuff? Because you and I all have this in our lives, right? We all have a living room. We all have a bathroom. So I go to people's houses all the time, and they invite me there, and I'll say, hey, where's the bathroom? And they'll say, okay, it's the third door on the left, and I'll go into that room. <laughs> the den of iniquity. All right. All the stuff just gets shoved in there and nobody's supposed to go in there. They wanted me to see the bathroom where they had the nicely folded towels and the neat little soaps. That's what they wanted me to see. They didn't want me to see this. All right. We all have a room like this. Here's the good thing. Here's the good news. We might have several rooms like that. That's fine. All right. How many rooms do you want? There's a whole basement like this. Okay. And there's an attic, all right. But here's the good news. This is the best part. With God, there is no roof. There's no roof. That's how we say roof, where I'm from. <laughs> but we tend to put a door up, and God, because God so reverences our freedom, will not enter in until we let Him. This is what you see again and again in the Gospel. God so reverences our freedom that He waits for us to tell us what we need. To tell Him what's happening. He reverences our freedom to reveal ourselves. He'll never force that. He'll never presume or assume. Blind man Bartimaeus, he's blind. He's begging. He's on the roadside. And what does Jesus ask him? What do you want me to do for you? Like, really, Jesus? He's blind. Come on. Does he have to say it? Yes, he does. Why? Because Jesus reverences our freedom. He's not forceful. He's gently invasive. That's what I try to be in the seminary. Gently invasive. All right? And most of all, by asking questions. So the first question is, 
is God, is this man letting God into his stuff? Are you letting God into your stuff by telling him all the details? Are you letting God into your stuff? The second question is, are you moving with God through it and in your stuff? Are you moving with God? Because if a person is letting God into their stuff and then moving with God in and through it, there will be healing and transformation and whatever that stuff is, whether it be family history, family trauma, family of origin issues, abuse, neglect, persistent uh, sort of low moods, depression, moral issues, whatever it is, my stuff. Does God have all of it? Particularly and specifically, with me. We might as well just kind of shrug and say, just come on in, God. Here's how it is. This is what's going on. So that's what I tell the men and I tell that with you today. Are you letting God into your stuff and are you moving with God in it and through it? Because that's the most annoying thing about the, the redemption. Hey, God, get me out of my stuff. Calgon, take me away. All right? That's an old commercial. Seminarians have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> they just no idea. I even asked where they were on 9-11. The college guys were there and they were like, I wasn't born yet. Oh my goodness. I could be your dad. That's when it happens, right there. Guy's born after 2001. Really? Okay. 18? All right. So I'm moving with God in and through my stuff because this is what God does. He doesn't take us out of our stuff. He doesn't like just snatch us out of it. If the crucifixion tells us anything, what does the crucifixion tell us? Are you ashamed and ridiculed and feeling that way in your stuff? Are you feeling lowly and unworthy and neglected? The strategy of the redemption is to go into where we are. That's annoying, right? Dad, I don't want to do this work. And Dad gets down and stands next to me and does it with me. Really? We're still going to do the work? Yep. remember growing up as a child on the farm. I don't want to scoop manure. I did a lot of that. And it changed everything when Dad got next to me and he scooped. Went a lot faster. But that's annoying. He's not taking me out. He's getting into it with me. Really? Get me out of my stuff. This is my body. I just don't want to deal with this. This is my blood. (sighs) Really? Is that enough? Yes. Do I believe Jesus in my relationship with Jesus is enough? Do I believe that? Where do we go from here? Answer that question, and you'll know. I used this with you in the uh, discernments class, and I just like going back to it again and again. This is the image of being in love, remaining in love, staying in love, intimate and unceasing communion, which is always meant for us. He's always laboring to love us from the moment of our baptism. It's like being a receptive bird. You can talk about sailboats, you can talk about birds, 
I like birds. A friend of mine was going to the mountains of Colorado and they did a 14er. If you do a 14er, it's kind of a big deal. There's many you could climb and they were climbing one particular one. Now, he'd only been there for a short time and he was with his friend who's about 5'8", 220 pounds. He's built like a billy goat. And he's just climbing up this 14er just like no problem. But my friend is 6'8", and he's built more like a giraffe, all right? And giraffes don't do well on 14ers because you have all these boulders, all right? And he's trying to climb up, and he's not climatized, and he's just coming straight from the lowlands of South Dakota. So as he's climbing over these boulders, he realizes, I don't know my middle name. What's my last name? What's happening to him? He's running out of oxygen, so he has to stop. So there's one way to get up the mountain. Just try really hard. So he stopped and he looked and he looked out at a lake down below on the lake. He could see there were some pine trees and out of the pine tree came this bird. And the bird circled the lake and pretty soon after about four or five minutes of watching this bird circle the lake, where was the bird? At eye level with him. Did the bird, did the eagle flap its wings at all? Nope. That one time, it went straight up to the heights by keeping its wings open and receiving this draft of wind that was just called a thermal. And technically, this is how it works. And you just stay in the thermal and it'll get you right up to the heights. That is the engineering of the bird. But this, my friends, is the engineering of our spiritual lives. God is always giving us a thermal. Stay in the thermal. Stay in the love. But we'll get disoriented, won't we? And that's called desolation. Does he really love? Does God really want? Notice how the enemy tempts Adam and Eve. Did God really say? He introduces doubt. He introduces fear. That's how the enemy works. Through mechanisms of fear. Not temptation. Temptation comes later. But he introduces fear first. He works through desolating thoughts, desolating feelings, desolating desires, lies. That's how he works. And so I want to stay open to love. But that's not easy to do if my heart is small and my faith is weak. When I stay open to love, it defines my relationships. I discover who I am and the other, and my vocation is love. That's Teresa Lisieux. That's what she discovered in her little way. Day by day, the little things reveal how I stay in love. And my vocation is to love. You all know dandelion theology, don't you? Do you remember dandelion theology? If you do, great. This is review. The mother of learning, my friends, is repetition. Okay? The mother of learning is repetition. If you don't know dandelion theology, short story. Child comes into the kitchen holding behind his back something. Mom notices the child has something. What do you have there? The child reveals the dandelions. And what does the mother say? They're beautiful. Thank you. And because the child has superinvested his whole self in the dandelions, those dandelions are the child. And so she says, I love you. 
And then she gives the child the nonverbal, the hug. And through the hug, the nonverbal communication says, I want more of you. Because the mother was so receptive with thank you and praise. They're beautiful. And I love you, the response. And then the nonverbal, I want more of you. What's the child do? Goes out. And there's no more dandelions left after a few weeks. <laughs> Best weed killer ever. <laughs> Gleefully, gladly, giddily, the child does this, labors. To give you or the mom something that she can receive. In this scenario, who is God? The child. Please God, it's the child. And you and I are meant, like that mother, to be receptive to how God chooses to reveal himself. How God chooses to give himself. Remember how offended the people were when he said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he will give it in bread and wine, two very ordinary realities. There's a Eucharistic richness in the dandelion theology. God takes two ordinary things, bread and wine, and he superinvests himself in them so they are him. And we are given this gift for our own communion in a way that we could receive and not be offended, not run away. The Eucharist is the way God treats us so that we don't run away, which is our tendency. The human condition is to hide. Consistently hide. And God is always after us in our hiding by asking this question. Where are you? If you ever want a spiritual question, that's the best one. Where are you? Where do you live? Well, I live in aloneness. I live in confusion. I live in the hellishness of not knowing who you are, God. Where do you live? This is what God asked at the breezy time of day when he came into the garden after they had fallen and then punished themselves with fig leaves. They go and hide. They're alienated from each other. They're alienated from themselves. And most of all, they're alienated from God. And so God asked, where are you? Not because God doesn't know, but God reverences our self-revelation. How we reveal ourselves. How we choose to talk about ourselves how we choose to talk about what's happening. We were afraid, and so we were naked, and so we hid ourselves. And then God, you can hear the offense. Who told you you were naked? Who told you to be ashamed? Who told you to hide? Do they respond? No. Dead silent. And this is what the Catechism says. Man may forget or hide. He may run after idols or even accuse God of having abandoned him. This is how bad it is. That we'll even accuse God of leaving us. Didn't Jesus say that? 
He said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He's not even, he's not even afraid to take on our voice of accusation so that the truth might be revealed. That he never leaves us. He never, never, never leaves us orphan. He will raise him on the third day. You know there's intimacy when you can say anything. You know there's intimacy when we can be really free to be honest. That's a sign of intimacy. Jesus is intimate with the Father because He can be that honest. Can I be that honest with God? Because He's always after us, laboring to have us commit ourselves more and more to Him. By faith, we freely commit ourselves entirely to God. Do I have the faith that allows for this honesty, that allows for this asking. And so the dynamic of the relationship, acknowledge, relate, receive, respond, that is always happening. It's not steps, it's not a method. I need to acknowledge honestly and relate honestly with who God is because He's laboring tirelessly to call each of us back to Himself in the truth. When you watch the Passion of the Christ, my dad had the best response. We finished watching The Passion and he said, why do I sin? That's the only question that has no rational answer. Why do I sin? The only question that has no rational answer whatsoever. To see how tirelessly He wants to be with us and reach us. That's the passion, the most eloquent statement for how God wants to reach us. It's no mistake that you're having this last occasion right before Lent. Not so that you can graduate in your commissioning, but so you can deepen the reality of God's tireless call and the height and depth and breadth of the goodness of the news. That there's no end to it. There's infinite compassion here. Infinite love. God gradually, day by day, reveals Himself through words and actions. This drama engages the heart. The catechism is almost poetic here. Through the words and actions of the Scripture, God's going to engage our hearts uniquely and specifically. And so I've given to you one of my favorite Scripture passages if you want to pray with it for your prayer time. So if you open up your pamphlet, you'll find Alexio. You can pray with Martha and Mary. And you can hear with Martha that it's not her work that is the problem. Martha's work is not the problem. It's the spirit of her work. Notice the spirit of Martha and what she says. And I'd like you to engage these three questions right above it. And this will be part of the table discussion when we come back. The table discussion will consist of these three questions. 
Can you share a concrete and personal experience of God's love for you? I did this with a number of priest groups, and I have to say I was really um, dismayed. I don't think that's um, saying it strongly enough, actually. We were asked as priests, can you tell us about a particularly powerful experience of Jesus' love for you? And here's how the group of priests responded after having table discussion. Uh, Well, it's kind of like a mosaic, and there's lots of pieces to it. And so I'm not really able to like name like one concrete instance. It's, it's like a, a tapestry and the pieces come together to express this love. And, and the presenter said, tell us about one of those pieces. Well, it's a part of a whole. Well, tell us about the whole. Well, it's a whole kind of image. Well, tell us about the image. And you could tell the person speaking was just getting annoyed but the presenter was just pressing in. Next guy, priest. Another table. Yeah, it comes to us through the sacraments. I experienced the love of Jesus through the sacraments. The sacraments are where I've experienced concrete love of Jesus. Presenter, tell us about that sacrament. Well, it's really all the sacraments. Is there any individual occasion in which you were touched? Well, sure there were, but I'm just, they're not coming to mind right now. Third try. Another, another priest gets up. He gives it a shot. Well, I experienced his, his love in a, in a recent occasion with uh, somebody who was dying. He stopped there. What, what, what happened? Well, I was there on time and I was there to be there with them while they were dying. It was an incredible moment. What did that say about God's love for you? Well, uh, I was there on time and I could be there. Great, but what did it say about God's love for you? Can you please share something? Well, they wanted me there. Okay. Why did they want you there? Well, I know the family. Okay. What do they know about you that drew them to bring you there? Uh, They trust me? Well, could we dare to say this? God trusts you. And they could see the priest just like, oh, well, um, yeah, I suppose. I suppose painful poverty of expression. I almost hesitate to say this out loud because I know this is being recorded. (laughs) But this is my favorite story at the seminary and it's a story that Father Martin tells. A lot of you know Father Chris Martin. Father Chris Martin is the pastor at St. Clair's. He was the vocation director for seven years. He was giving a homily and during the course of the homily he described a retreat he had and during this retreat the retreat master, his spiritual director, asked him this question. Tell me about an experience of God's... Tell me, what is your experience of God's love for you? That's the question. Tell me an experience of the Father's love for you. And Father Martin said, well, God so loved the world, he sent his only son. And while I was a sinner, he loved me. That's scripture. Father Martin thought, got it. We're good. The retreat master, spiritual director, said... I didn't ask you to tell me about your experience of God's love. I asked you to tell me an experience. Don't tell me about your experience. Tell me an experience. Oh. uh, Blank stare. And the retreat master said this to Father Chris Martin. You're what's wrong with the priesthood. 
you can't say anything about the Father's love personally and concretely. You're what's wrong with the priesthood. Eight days of silence would follow, and he realized this question being answered, especially in the image that came to him was when he was playing with his dog, lying on the floor, lying on his back, just playing with his dog. And the sarans came by and they saw him on the floor, lying on his back in this sort of embarrassing moment. But he said, it was there that the Father was loving me when I was playing. The Father loves me when I'm playful. And if there's anybody who's good at being playful, it's Father Chris Martin. The Father loves me when I'm playful. I experience his love in that moment, lying on the floor with my dog, and I'm not ashamed. Usually he gets ashamed by things easily. This, This moment he wasn't. So I loved the homily. I thought, this is the greatest homily. Thank you, Father Martin. What a great homily. I came back and I told Father Mason about this homily. He's like, that's a good homily. It sounds like the retreat master is kind of a jerk. And I was like, yeah, I don't don't know who that was. I'm going to ask Father Martin. So I went back to Father Martin. Who's the retreat master, the spiritual director? It was Father Mason. (laughs) And I was like, you guys need to get together. We need to have a reunion and talk about this. And Father Mason, of course, didn't remember anything about it. Uh, but that, my friends, is what's wrong with the priesthood. Men who don't experience the Father's care in a personal, concrete, particular way, and we're meant to. And so that's why I pose the question to you. Can you share a concrete, personal experience of God's love for you? And then what does that say about your identity? about who you are and how does that experience move your next steps? What do you desire moving forward? Because where we go from here can only be with the Father. It's not a where question. It's a who question. I invite you to take this to prayer and see what the body and blood of Jesus is offering to you in our time of prayer together. So there's your gospel and there are your points for prayer. How's that sound to you? It's 5 after 11. We'll take about 11.20, about 15.